Hope you have your little book with you. If not, we have some more back there. Uh, I do want to encourage you that maybe over the last couple of weeks you've been praying about, boy, I'd like to give this to somebody, uh, maybe witness to somebody with some of that. We have some extras back there. And so please feel free to take one and uh, to give that to somebody. And uh, just really, I think they're just a really, really good book. I think it's really a good Simple study that keeps the main things, the main things. And uh, we're on uh, uh, question 19 and uh, looking toward the end of this tonight. But um, why do the wise men bring gifts? And uh, I think this is uh, really a neat uh, question uh, they're on page 79 because it kind of talks about uh, kind of what each of the gifts can uh, represent. But one thing that really stood out to me, and I can't remember if it was this book or a book that I am reading for our Sunday morning series, but uh, right after all of this takes place, you know that Joseph is warned to take the child and go to Egypt. And one of the people that I was listening to said, how do you think they funded their trip and stay in Egypt? Probably with some of the gifts that were given to them. Some of the very gold that was brought to them was probably used for a father with a newborn baby to find a place to live. It's not like they were in Bethlehem where he could stay with family. He was in a foreign country, in a foreign land. It's not like he could go down and draw unemployment. It's not like he could go to Ikea and say, here's my resume, would you hire me? Literally, he would have came into a distant land with skills, but probably no prospects right off the bat, but yet they have to provide for this young family. And so even with the wise men bringing the gifts, which we're going to look at what they represent, it was practical in the sense that God was providing them what they needed for their journey. Just like when you think about the Exodus, as the children of Israel are getting ready to leave, what was it that the Egyptians were giving them? Everything they would need, right? God was providing for His people. And so when you think about all of the details that God has uh, worked out, I mean, just imagine if you were not even in your home, staying with a family member with a new baby, and God says, you got to go. you got to get this child and flee to Egypt. And uh, with just the stuff that they would have brought with them to Bethlehem, they made the journey. And uh, so just a couple things about the gifts there on page uh, uh, 79. Uh, it talks about the gold. And uh, we know that this gift leads little, little explanation. Uh, why a Gold is a royal gift symbolizing kingship. And we know that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, there on page 80, uh, the frankincense was, uh, was a holy oil. It would have been used to anoint. It would have been used in the temple as an aroma. And so when you would have smelt it, you would have thought about the temple and all that would have went on in the temple and the worship and the sacrifice, which we know that at some point Jesus was going to be anointed again, if you remember, uh, at Bethany by a lady. Uh, who poured some very, very valuable oil over him, preparing him for the cross. And then the third and final gift on the bottom of page 80 
If someone wants to read that last paragraph on page 80 and the first paragraph on page 81, I would greatly appreciate it. And so we see here that these gifts represent kingship. They represent the anointing of uh, the godly son of a perfect sacrificial lamb. And then we see this one represents death, right? And so we see who he is even in the very gifts that he is given pointing toward what? The cross and everything he was going to have to go through to save us from our sins. Uh, there on page 81, uh, David Jeremiah says the day would come when Jesus would be offered this gift again, but on this later occasion he would refuse it. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldier nailed him to the cross. And so that very last sentence on page 81, as our king our God, and our sacrificial lamb, He gave us all He had. And so while the gifts were very much a spiritual picture, they were a very practical picture of what this family would need to survive. Uh, Any questions, thoughts? I like that one on the first question on page 81. It said, which of the gifts of the wise men would you like to receive? My first was gold. But then the question was, well, how much gold was it? If the oil was as valuable as it was when Mary anointed the Lord, a full year's worth of wages probably, maybe the oil was more valuable. And then as I began to think about that, I was like, Jake, how greedy are you? That's the first thing that your mind went to. And then I went to the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I read that and thought, 20 questions in and I'm still as wicked as when I started. But what would you think? I mean, you know, for us it's a really difficult question because we wouldn't really have much use for the other two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. Amen. And that second question was one I... I wrote a lot of different things down, scratched most of them out. If you were able to give Jesus a material gift today, what would you bring and why? What are the two things they tell you you shouldn't talk about in church? Politics and money. That's what people say. I don't want to go out there and listen to that preacher talk about money. Politics and religion, right? But why? Because it's a touchy, touchy subject. Why? Because when all of us look at our lives, all of us could probably sit back and think, you know what, I could probably give something more sacrificial. I probably didn't have to buy that 17th wall decoration that says the same thing in a different color that makes my house look like HGTV like our home does, right? We begin to ask those questions. And when it said that material gift today, I thought of a lot of things like my time and my efforts, and but it, that wasn't material. And so I really just began to pray about that in my own life, about what would it be. And for me, the obvious one is money, because most of us probably bring our tithes and offerings, and we either do it online or in a check or cash form. Don't see a lot of lambs being brought in or sheep or 
you know, four pigs to be slaughtered. And so for most of us, if we were able to give him something today, what would it be? Would it be your most prized possession? Would it be something left over? One of the funniest things about a friend of mine pastors a church with a crisis closet. And uh, growing up at First General, we had a crisis closet. And I said, what is the best and worst thing about having a clothing center in your church? He said, one, helping people that really need it. He said, two, is having to go through all the junk that people just didn't, wanted to get rid of, and we were the only place that would take it. And so they just dumped it, huh? After the garage sale, yeah. And they just dump it here. He said, that's the worst. Because sometimes they don't bring it with the right heart. They bring it with, well, Goodwill said we probably shouldn't bring it there, so they'll take it. And I really begin to think a lot about that. And then just about our worship. When we come on Sundays from a spiritual sense, do we come after having our hearts prepared? Have we got up early and read and studied and prayed and came to church ready to worship? Or do we just come with our leftovers? Right? I understand that, right? My wife gets all of our kids up by herself, brings them by herself. We have never rode to church in 11 years, all right? Um, never. Uh, and I think about, man, I know how distracted I get when I come to church. No wonder she comes in looking like a tornado or a bomb went off, right? No wonder they're two minutes late and I'm standing at the door going, that's not a very good example. Tardy, you know. And so I ask you that, not even just from a material sense, from, but an emotional sense, from a spiritual sense. How do you approach coming into the presence of the Lord? Well, the next question that we see in this book uh, is uh, why did Jesus not have a royal birth in the sense of an earthly royal birth? I think even back into the days that the children of Israel were in Egypt and I think about what it would have been like for the birth of Pharaoh's son and all that would have went on to that and all of the celebration and the sacrifices to the pagan gods. And if you've ever researched anything about that, uh, especially when a son was born in a kingdom, especially a pagan kingdom, uh, there were great sacrifices made to the gods of that country. They could have been animal sacrifices in pagan countries. They could have been human sacrifices. Uh, and it would have been something that would have been celebrated throughout the kingdom because why? The royal lineage was established. If you've ever studied anything about the king of England, uh, there was a king that didn't want to be married to a certain woman. The Catholic Church didn't want her to uh, want him to get divorced, and so he really started the Church of England uh, over that very same thing. And you look at different kings of England who didn't have sons, and they would get rid of their wives because it was their fault, uh, which we now know is not their fault. But in that day and time, it was all about an heir, the royal son. And so on page 84, when we start talking about these kings and a royal birth, it says, in contrast, here was a peasant couple and their young son. Even Mary and Joseph must have wondered how a king could rise to power from such humble circumstances. The pageantry of an earthly royal birth would have caught the world's notice. Now, most of us have seen it in our own country. 
families that are born into uh, wealthy families in America. You probably think of the Rockefellers. Uh, you think of some of those families that built America if you watch the History Channel. Uh, they've got colleges named after them, Vanderbilt, uh, all of those. Their, their children were born into an opportunity to better themselves. I heard someone teasing uh, our last president one time about uh, that he was a self-made millionaire, he worked himself up from nothing, and he had built an empire, and they said, and that was Donald Trump's father. And uh, because if you've ever read anything about his father, he truly had nothing and built that empire from the ground up. And so they were teasing the president that uh, he had a head start on everyone else. And uh, when you think about that, that's how many of us think about success. Well, they inherited it, or right, they took over the family business. They started in a position where they could succeed. But if you're Mary and Joseph, and you're looking at this child who has been promised and who has the, the, the Bible talks about all the promises that he's going to fulfill, and you're living in a home that's not even yours, Right, you're living on a room probably built by a family member in a town that is your family's history, and you really have nothing. It's literally a rags-to-riches story. But I think if you've ever been a parent and you were not wealthy when your children were born, you've probably worried about that, right? How am I going to feed this kid? How am I going to clothe this kid? How, is, how, how are we going to raise a kid? If you've been to the grocery store lately, I think that every time we buy our groceries for six children, it's like, what in the world? How are we going to feed this many crumb pickers over the next 16 years or whatever it takes to get them all out of the house? And uh, it, But it's nothing like it would have been in this day and age, right? It would have been so much different, but yet they had the faith to believe God. There on page 85, that first paragraph, without the least, but it says, Jesus came. If somebody would read that, I would greatly appreciate that. Amen. And so we see that the first time Jesus comes in ultimate humility. We know the second time He is coming back in His full power and glory. But when we watch His birth, we really should see the example that He set. That you don't have to come from money to serve. You don't have to come from prestige to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Right? He came as the example of humility. On page 86, the Roman guards, that paragraph, if somebody would read that. Amen. And so if you have your Bible and want to, if you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 27, as they were making fun of Him on the cross, in verse 32, we see some of the things that we've been talking about. It says in verse 32, Now they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink. 
Then they crucified and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is the king of the Jews. Now we know they did that to mock him, to humiliate him. Because why? Why would a king leave the world like this? And when we think about a birth in a humble manger, we would ask ourselves the same thing. Why would the king of kings enter the world that way? But we see like what the book of Philippians says in chapter 2. And if you're familiar with Philippians chapter 2, you can quote it by heart. But it talks about he did not consider it robbery. Right and, and to come in the form of man and to suffer and to go through all of those things. And so in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and I won't read the whole chapter, you can read that. Right, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind in verse 3. Let each one esteem others better than himself. And then verses 5 through 11, right, it talks about the humble and the humility of Christ. In verse 8, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so, but that verse 6 is probably one of those verses in the Bible that stands out with me the most in Philippians 2. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God. I am the world's worst at throwing a pity party. That's not fair. And the other day I was at the school and one of the kids went, well, that's not fair. And before I even thought about it, I went, life's not fair. Get over it. That little third grader looked at me like, it was my own third grader, okay? Let's just be clear. It's my own third grader. But yet we see here that he did not consider it robbery. And then if we're familiar with verses 12 through 15, it talks about then wherever God sends you or whatever God allows you to go through in service of Him, right? For we do nothing with complaining or disputing. Why? Because whatever God allows us to go through, we know that there's a purpose and a plan. And whatever God is trying to accomplish, we know that it is for His good. And so while... He understood what was going on. He understood that his birth did not have to define his royal status, just like his death did not establish his royal status. We need to understand that our earthly circumstances are not always what God is doing. Sometimes He's working in behind the scenes. He's working for how it's going to impact the next generation, how it's going to impact your children. I try very hard to never say anything negative about people from church to my wife or my children. I say it in the car by myself all the time, all right? If you see me driving and talking, it's probably about somebody here. But, uh, but never in front of my wife or children. Because why? What happens when you talk negative about someone in front of your wife and children is you affect how they view someone else. 
And there's a reason that almost every pastor's wife that I have ever met is bitter. Why? Because their husbands come home bitter and they dump it on them. That's why when my wife comes to church, she looks clueless. I don't mean that in a bad way, all right? That's what you're going to go tell her. She comes in smiling. She leaves smiling. If you ask her what's going on at church, she has no clue. And I do that for a reason. That way she enjoys coming to church. That way she doesn't know what someone said about her or her kid. This last week I was visiting and uh, I went into one of the rooms and uh, my wife and kids have been going to Heritage Woods with us the last two weeks uh, because they would rather see them than me. And uh, they've told me that multiple times. And uh, one of the ladies goes, oh, it was so good to your wife, but boy, she's just carrying a little bit of extra weight, isn't she? I've never seen her quite that heavy. And I went, well, she's not carrying near, near as much as I am, you know, or something stupid like that. And uh, when I got out of the car, my kids were teasing me about being fat, as they always do, and I encouraged them too. And I wanted to say, Tony, you will never believe what somebody told me. But I didn't. But I thought, that lady, if she wasn't 92 years old and a woman, I'd have slapped her. But no, I'm, I'm teasing. And that was kind of comical. It was just, you know, it was what it was. But there's, been a, there's a whole lot of things that aren't that comical that are said. And friends, when you take your frustration with church or your frustration with your Sunday school teacher or your frustration with your deacon, or your frustration with your pastor, and you dump it all over your children on the ride home. Friends, what you don't realize is it might not affect you, but it's affecting them. When you sit around Christmas and your kids are listening to why you're not happy about church and, and why you don't go to church anymore, it might not damage you, but it's going to damage them. And it's no surprise that a generation of people have grown up not wanting to go to church when they have seen the things that go on in church. So my kids don't stay for church business meetings while ours are usually pretty peaceful. My wife doesn't stay for church business meetings. Why? Because I want them to enjoy church. I want them to love coming here. That's why when my kids get here, their shoes are off. Sometimes half their clothes are off because this is just home. Right? They, this, they love this place more than anywhere on the planet, pretty much. And that's the way I want it to be. And so sometimes we don't understand what God is doing in the next generation. You don't know how much you could teach your children how to love church by just the way you talk about it, the way you view it. And so don't let what is going on define who you are. Because Jesus was still the King of kings, Lord of lords in that manger. And He was still the King of kings and Lord of lords when they were spitting on Him and beating Him. He was still the King of kings and Lord of lords while He was on the cross. None of what they did defined who He was. And that's how we should be as believers. All right. So, question 21. Why do Anna and challenge us, excuse me. When we look here in this passage of Scripture uh, on page uh, 89, um, Luke uh, is talking about the fact 
uh, that he has now seen the promise that was given to him. And if you go on down and look at Anna, uh, these are two people who had spent their whole life waiting on the promise of God. And I think the reason this is so hard for most of us is that we do not like to wait. We are not patient people. And so when we see the fact that uh, Anna was 84 years old, she spent all of her time in the temple. When we look at the age of... Man and everybody else in this passage of Scripture, we see that it was a long time coming. It wasn't something that they would have just immediately seen. And on page 87 there, one, two, three, the bottom paragraph on page 87, and the beginning of the next paragraph there on 88, if somebody would read that, I would greatly appreciate it. So we see here just this idea that even though these individuals were waiting on the promise, they were still continuing to serve the Lord while they waited. And I think a lot of us, when we read through this and we think about the decades they would have waited, they would have waited for the promise. When we see there in Luke chapter 2 on page 89, The Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die as peace, as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and He is the glory of your people, Israel. When you look down and read that about Anna, we see this idea that God's promises are always going to come to fruition. That God always keeps His word. But God's timetable doesn't always work on ours. And I think that's really challenging for us. How many of us are praying for someone in your family that is lost? And you just keep praying, Lord, save them. Lord, draw them. Lord, change them. Lord, just work in their heart and life. Many of you maybe have a prodigal that was raised in church, that uh, made a profession of faith, was baptized, and... And you have spent years praying for them to return. I know in my own life, the years that my mother spent praying for me. And uh, the fact that there are mothers who are still praying for their prodigal children. And yet here in this passage of Scripture, in Luke chapter 2, we see the fruition of that. And the question that is asked on page 90 It says, can you think of a person who has shown exceptional patience and dependability? Who and why? When I read that question, I really began to think about people that are very faithful in church, people that are very committed to church. But as I began to pray longer, I began to think about that with people who have stayed faithful through great adversity. I can think of people who have lost loved ones and it has drawn them closer to the Lord. I can think of people who used to be in this church but have lost loved ones and have grown bitter with God and want nothing to do with God. I have watched people get a diagnosis of cancer and watch it be a rallying call for them to draw closer to God. But I've also watched people get health diagnosis and get so angry at God that they've never come back. 
my own family. I watched my mother bury a child, drew her closer to the Lord. I've also pastored long enough now to see families bury a child and it drive them from the Lord. And so when I begin to really think about that first question, I begin to think about faithfulness through adversity. And would I consider myself to be faithful through the ups and downs of life? Or have I been one that wants to run at the first chance of difficulty? Would, am I one that doubts the first time things don't go my way? And so while we know that faith is a gift, and we know that in the case of Job, if you were here Sunday night, and uh, if you were here, we talked about Job, and we talked about Peter, that faith never fails, right? It might waver for a moment, but that when God gives you that faith, we believe in the perseverance of the saints, that God will keep you, that while you may wander, while you may drift, that faith that God gave you is still with you. And so I really just thought about this and began to pray for a lot of you because of what people are going through. We never know someone's heart. And what we do know, though, is when people go through difficulties, it reveals their heart. And so my prayer has always been, Lord, help them to be faithful with whatever they go through. Lord, help them to stay committed when the results don't go their way. When the outcome isn't what they would choose. And so I just have really been thinking about this a lot. I've done four funerals in the last, I think, nine days, ten days, something like that. And it is so encouraging when you're able to do a funeral with someone that you know knows the Lord. And uh, they've talked to you about it. They've talked about their salvation. They're ready to go. And uh, that you can celebrate even in the grief. Uh, this year I have done nine funerals for people who I did not know, who I did not know their church background, but yet naturally when I went to talk to the family and I'd say, tell me about their spiritual walk with the Lord. Tell me about if you knew they had a relationship with the Lord. It's always, well, they're in heaven. Well, why are they in heaven? Well, that's where people go. And that is a whole different approach because that's not what the Bible teaches. All people don't go to heaven like the all dogs go to heaven, right? It has to be a relationship with the Lord. And so I really think about when spiritual people lose a loved one that they're not sure about, it causes us grief. We, we go to the funeral saying, I hope something changed at the last minute. I hope that somebody witnessed to him in the hospital. I want to share this one last story and then I'll shut up. A few months ago, maybe a year ago, a very well-known member in this community, I told this at his, um, at his funeral, um, he was from Dale and he had for years told everybody that he was an atheist um, and was not a Christian, told pastors that, told his family that. And one night I was walking through the hospital at McLeansboro and I was going to visit someone that was dying and the family was all there, and it was like 11.30 at night or something. And I went by this man's room. He was in 208, right across from the nurse's station at Hamilton Memorial. And he was awake. And just as you know, when the Spirit kind of prompts you to do something that you don't want to do, I ignored it. And so I went right past that door, 
and I got right to where the hallway turns, and there's the nurse's station, there's the nurse's computer room, I don't know what it is, and I stopped and thought, all right, I'm going to go back. Turned around and went into that room and uh, talked to that gentleman about the Lord. He uh, trusted Christ as his Savior, and about uh, just a week or so later died. And I led him to the Lord and went down and talked to that family, and like I do, if you know me, my brain just doesn't work. And so I get a call like a week later that this person has died. And his family wants me to come down to his house down around Walpole. And so I get there, I pull up, I get to the front porch, and the daughter is like, I just can't believe that my dad's in hell. And I'm like, oh, I didn't tell you. This is, this is true. I told this at the funeral, and, and you know him. It was Dalton Knight. And I went in and told the family. I was like, I... I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm, I'm an idiot. You know, I think that's exactly what my words was. But yeah, I, I got to share the gospel with Dalton right there and he was saved about a week ago. And you would not believe how everything changed. There was still grief and there was still sadness. But for the people who really believed in Jesus, everything changed. Everything changed. Because the person they loved the most, who had spent his whole life telling them that he was not a Christian, that he did not believe, everything changed. And I just asked myself that question, and you as well tonight, about perseverance. Don't quit. Don't quit praying. Don't quit sharing. Don't quit being who God wants you to be. Questions, thoughts, comments. Yes, you're saying, Jake, I can't believe you wouldn't tell someone that you led someone to the Lord. I'm sorry. <laughs> it just is what it is at this point. Most days I don't even know where I'm at. So, uh, any questions? All right. So somber. Question 22, and this will probably be the last one we do. Why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? I mean, if you've read through this book, you can see uh, that there is a lot of disagreements uh, about when we should celebrate Christmas and when Jesus was actually born. And you can read for hours upon hours about people that believe it was the spring and people who would have believed it was the fall and people who believe it was this date. And what I can tell you is none of it matters. It doesn't matter doesn't change the fact that the Son of God was born of a virgin in a manger and requires us to worship Him. Now, is it interesting? You bet it is. I've got like 18 pages. If you would like them, you can read it for yourself about when the church started honoring Christmas and that the early church didn't celebrate birthdays. They didn't, they didn't make a big deal over this holiday of the birth of Jesus. That was just not what they did. You can look at it from the sense that the Romans were trying to worship on a pagan and Constantine said, we're going to take the day for Jesus. It's all interesting. It's all really neat. But in the grand scheme of things, it is what it is. And so what we know is this, that when you read this passage of Scripture here, uh, talking about the birth of Jesus, uh, when you read the Scriptures talking about the setting, uh, just believe it. It's kind of like the wise men. Where were they from? I believe Babylon, but could be wrong. 
just like all of the details of the Christmas story, many of them are not in the Scripture. And so we have to be very careful to not make things that aren't the main things the main things. But what I do want you to see on page 94 is this. In the middle paragraph, and yes, we would love to know exactly what day and what year marked the birth, what latitude and what longitude marked the stable, what country of origin provided the wise men, what number of angels populated the sky, and what galaxy housed the star of Bethlehem. But upon further consideration, we realize that we know all we need to know. After all, the time of Christ's birth is now, this very second within each of us. He continues to smile on us from the crude mangers of our souls every moment that we feel His love, and particularly when we give the love away. And December 25th, it is as good as a day as any. It's a together day when we can feel all the world bowing as one before the King. But all other days of the year are Christmas too. That's the measure of His great gift to us. While I think there's some of that that's a little too mushy for my liking and a little too feely, I think it's very true. One of the things that makes such a big difference about when we celebrate Christmas is in the Bible it talks about that they were in the field with the sheep. And some people say that shepherds would not have been out in the field at certain times. But what we don't recognize is that sometimes they were. They could have been sheep that were going to be used for sacrifice. And so they would have been out more grazing than other animals. And so there's just so much that we don't know. But if you would really like to study all of it, I've got it right here. All right? And so you can sit and discuss and question and read. But it looks like the church began to celebrate on the 21st of December in about 366 A.D. Some scholars believe they were worshiping the 25th even as early as 200 A.D., but we just don't know for sure. The Eastern Church, um, for instance, uh, they celebrate even Easter two weeks later. They will celebrate Christmas a few days different. So even among Christian communities there are disagreements over when we should celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so other questions? Yeah. And if you're not sure what he's talking about there, I'll just read this to you. While it should be simple, the Jewish lunar calendar, which has 12 months of 30 days each and adds an extra month every third year, with Greek and Roman calendars, proves to be difficult. They don't operate on the same... So you have months being added, days being added. After much debate, the Eastern Church, which was using the Greek calendar, settled on April the 6th for... And the Western Church, which is the church at Rome, settled on March 25th as the date of Christ's death. And so, as we know, with time, the Western Church prevailed and helped determine the Sunday to which we celebrate Easter. So, when he's talking about the calendars, that's why it is so difficult, because everything operates differently. And so, hence you have. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. So, like I say, celebrate it, make much of Jesus, and don't spoil your grandchildren and, and children. So, <laughs> just kidding. Remember, don't raise spoiled kids. Someday I'll have to pastor them. No, I'm just, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. But why did Jesus come? And that's what we'll close with. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, uh, we know why Jesus came. We know who He is when He came. And uh, in Matthew 1, verse 21, you are to name Him Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And on page 97, this is how we'll close everything. And when He emerged, so when He began His ministry, we find that Jesus was constantly answering the great question of why did He come? On 13 occasions in the short gospel records, He used the phrase, I have come. Matthew chapter 9, I have come to call sinners. John chapter 5, I have come in my Father's name. John chapter 6, I have come to do the will of God. John chapter 7, I have come from Him and He sent me to you. John 12, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world. Right? If you flip over the next page, Jesus said, I have the Son of Man have come to seek and save those like Him who were lost. You can read this chapter and really see the heart behind Christmas and why He came and what His mission was. And on page 100, and this is the last thing, Jesus made another I come statement. The primary reason was a rescue mission. But Jesus also mentioned a secondary goal. He said, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. We know that that is not talking about earthly treasures, right? But we know that the false shepherd comes that he might abuse, that he might take advantage of. But Jesus came to give us life and life more abundant. Satan is one who seeks to what? Steal, kill, kill, excuse me, and destroy. And that question 100 says, have you ever gone on a mission trip? What was your motivation? And recently I was just thinking about that. And I would say some of my motivation to go to Mexico was the simple fact that every time I sat around a group of pastors, they talked about going on a mission trip. They'd say, Jake, where have you been? The hospital. A nursing home. No, where have you been? A pastor needs to go on a mission trip. <laughs> Evansville. East St. Louis is probably worse than Mexico, you know. And so I'd say some of my motivation was, gosh, I got to get these people off my back. Some of my motivation was probably, man, we're getting ready to talk about Lottie Moon offering, and how can you talk about giving to Lottie Moon four missions if you've ever been on a mission trip? So that'll help me relate with talking about missions. Just, I can't believe you just said that. I'm just telling you the truth. I can tell you when I got there, it all changed. And when I got back, it was all different. And so just because you go into something maybe with the not the best motivation doesn't mean God can't change it. And so this Christmas season, when God sends you to your family gatherings, uh, to your work Christmas parties, even to the side of family that you don't want to spend time with, remember this. God came to seek and save that which was lost. And that includes your family and mine. And so hopefully you will go as a missionary 
instead of how is Christmas all about me? Questions, thoughts, disagreements. All right. Like I said, I hope that you will grab one of these books on your way out. If you can think of somebody that you think it would be a blessing to, uh, put it in their stocking. They're literally a dollar and fifty cents on Amazon. If you want to buy them for your whole family, I think they'd be a wonderful, wonderful gift. If you were not here last week, um, I think it was um, Bill and Mary were saying that it was on every morning at what five o'clock on Directv or five thirty. If you want to record it, it's on. Uh, David Jeremiah's uh, website, there's a video of this, and so it's very, very good. I've not watched it. Every Christian radio station? Yeah. Someone told me, they said, well, Jake, if I was going to have to suffer through someone telling it, you should have just showed the video. And I was like, ah, funny. So if you didn't get anything out of me doing it, just go watch him, all right? 